You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The war in Europe was over. Germans called it Die Stunde Null, zero hour. Cities lay in ruins. Allied bombing had destroyed more than 1.8 million German homes. Of the 18.2 million men who had served in the German Army, Navy, Luftwaffe, and the Waffen-SS, a total of 5.3 million had been killed. 61 countries had been drawn into a war Germany started. Some 50 million people were dead. The Third Reich was no more. Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler were dead. Albert Speer was in custody. So were Siegfried Kneemeyer and Dr. Kurt Bloma. Otto Ambrose was under house arrest in Gindorf, with no one in Sayos or Alsace yet having figured out who he really was. Warner von Braun, Walter Dornberger, and Arthur Rudolph were in custody, working toward contracts with the U.S. Army. George Rickey had a job in London, translating documents for the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey. The future of war and weapons hung in the balance. What would happen to the Nazi scientists? Who would be hired and who would be hanged? In May 1945, there was no official policy regarding what to do with any of them. The question, who is a Nazi, is often a dark riddle. An officer with the Third Army, G5, wrote in a report sent to Schaaf headquarters in May. The question, what is a Nazi, is also not so easy to answer. Over the next few months, critical decisions about what to do with Hitler's former scientists and engineers would be made, almost always based on an individual military organization's needs and justified by perceived threats. Official policy would follow, one version for the public and another for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. A headless monster called Operation Paperclip would emerge. Annie Jacobson is the author of Area 51. Her new book is Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Thank you for having me. This is such an interesting book that is part historical thriller, part history of science, part a deep examination of the morality of what governments do in the name to protect us. I'd like you to talk about the way you put this book together because it m- much of it reads like a novel, and I'm wondering how much of influence fictional techniques had on the way you architected this book before you ever really started setting pen to paper. What a great question. You know, there's so much to learn from history. Um, And in many ways, you know, history can be an encyclopedia. But I find that the kind of reading that I like to do, and therefore the kind of writing that I like to do, is really that deeply narrative nonfiction that pulls the story and the heart of darkness out of this twisted tale. And I do that 
through the characters because these individual scientists, real men who lived and worked first for the Reich and later for the Department of Defense, you know, their stories unfold in a way that you could not make up. You know, one of the things I think that really struck me about this book was the way you architected these set pieces, these scenes with each of these individual characters, the the big players. You create these scenes in which we see them early on embedded in the end of the war as Nazis. And then you follow them, thread them through the book, and then you, as you bring them back, you will harken back to those original scenes where we see them as Nazis and see them again as important men in American life. And I think that's such an interesting technique. I'd like you to talk about just crafting some of these individual scenes. Well, you know, the book begins in November of 1944. And there's an important scene that takes place in a little tiny apartment in Strasbourg, France. And only months before, the Allies have landed on the co- on the continent at the storming of Normandy. And they've made their way to what is what was a bastion of Reich science. Uh, Strasbourg, France, the university there had been taken over by uh, the SS, in essence. And there you have the head of an intelligence operation named Samuel Goodsmith, and he's in charge of Alsace, which is sort of the precursor to Operation Paperclip. And in that little apartment, by candlelight, there he is reading these papers of a scientist who would reveal so much about Nazi science and what was happening in the Reich. And that part of the story, I actually looked at a memoir that was written, sort of a one of those lost books that Samuel Goodsmith wrote, the director of that mission, and coupled with his military officer, uh, another very interesting guy named Boris Posh, looking at his papers and his memoir, again, lost, sort of, you know, published in the 60s. But from those two texts, I was able to get these incredible details from, you know, the framed photograph of Hitler on the mantelpiece of this scientist and the sort of toppled over uh, filing cabinet. And you you can suddenly imagine this Nazi scientist, his name was Dr. Eugen Hagen, sort of fleeing his apartment, knowing the allies are coming. And of course, they come, they look at his papers, and they find so much out. There's such an incredible narrative tension that you create in this book. It's really a page turner. And uh, to me, it also reminded me quite a bit of William Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, only this is kind of like the dissolution and resurgence, in a sense, of some of the Reich characters. I'd like you to talk about the way you slice this, because it starts at the end of the war when just before the Germans have been defeated as we're running them out of Berlin and the Soviets are charging from the east towards the west. They're trying desperately to conceal what they've done. Yes, and you can sort of imagine the Nazis getting squeezed like in a vice. You've got the allies coming from one side and you've got the Russians coming from the other. And sort of we are descending upon this darkness. All across the Reich, which is now in ruins, are these little secret pockets of scientific 
treasure. And it comes in the form of documents because as the, as the war, it, as it becomes apparent that the Nazis are going to lose the war, many of these science, scientists who worked for Hitler, are smart men as they were, are thinking to themselves, what am I going to do next? And they are banking on the idea correctly so, that if they stash documents, they will have a bargaining chip to use with the allies who they imagine will want their forbidden knowledge. And that is exactly what happened from Warner von Braun to Hitler's chemists to men who were working on biological weapons. You see this foresight that they had that what they knew would become a linchpin in whether or not they would be hanged or they would be hired. It's so fascinating to see some of these individual scenes. I think one of my favorite scenes in the book is a scene where a man named Schmidt, who had been um, both a manager at IG Farben, but also was the manager of the bank, they're desperately searching for this house. This man is incredibly rich. So they're looking for a mansion. That's not quite where they find him. And when they do find him, a, a man named Tilly has a very interesting scene. I'm so glad you picked up on that. And I found those details in the prosecutor who would prosecute Schmidt at Nuremberg, um, a, an incredible lawyer named Josiah Dubois, also lost to history. His book was published right after the war. Um, coupled with other documents in archives, I pieced together that story that you're talking about. And when I learned about what happened there, I was just amazed. You can sort of feel the tension. You've got these army officers looking for Herr Schmidt. He is one of the wealthiest men in Germany. And you can imagine what he's been financing. And they can't find him. You're absolutely right, because they're looking for a castle. And instead, they kind of find this short, squat, ugly little house in Heidelberg. And they knock on the door, and Schmidt's Schmidt's wife is described as this dumpy housefrau by the army officers. And they ask if Schmidt is there, and he is. And they take him in through, you know, one detail on the wall says, God is in charge of this house, that tragic irony of that kind of a statement. And Schmidt won't speak to the army officers because, of course, he's a snob and he is an elitist and he's also a racist. And he sees these people as less than him. But when he gets word that a high-ranking officer named Major Tilly will speak with him, well, then he opens the door and he invites Tilly in and they're sitting in Schmidt's office. And Schmidt is not giving up any information. But Tilly begins to go around the room knocking on the wall. And as a reader, you're unsure what he's doing at first, knocking on the wall. And then Schmidt becomes nervous and begins to sweat. And Tilly continues to knock on the wall. And lo and behold, he comes across a hidden safe buried in the wall. And inside that safe, he finds a photo album. And Tilly doesn't know the meaning of this album at the time, but of course, anyone alive today knows what it means when I tell you that this was a photo album of Auschwitz. And it says, 
Auschwitz, the town before and after. And Schmidt's company, IG Farben, created a slave labor factory at Auschwitz next to the death camp. And so he collected this gruesome photograph. Gruesome not because there are photographs of Auschwitz, but just because it shows this little village before, and then it shows what it will become after. And that is an incredible moment of discovery for a journalist when you come across an old story like that and make that decision to weave that into the narrative of the book. Uh, One of the things I really loved is your sense of place in this book. I'm wondering, did you travel to some of these places and and see some of these? There's a a scene at a castle where they're launching V2s and you have Nazis in tuxedos. Uh, It's just astonishing. Yes. I mean, to get the details of those kinds of scenes, I went to the, um, the Bundes archives throughout Germany and looked in for some of the situations I would use photographs to describe them. But another castle that I was fortunate enough to visit sort of by happenstance because the castle happened to be up for sale and the lawyers that were handling the sale uh, agreed to let me go there. And this is Castle Kronzberg and it's in the Taunus Mountains. And Once upon a time, it was Goring's Luftwaffe headquarters. And very ironically, at the end of the war, we took Castle Kronzberg over and turned it into a prison for all of these Nazi scientists. And so we put them there and called this facility dustbin, a little humor there on the part of the Allies. And that is where these, the 21 I profile and many others, would stroll about the castle grounds in between being interrogated by different officers. And they would, you know, there's these incredible details that I learned about that castle where For example, Albert Speer would stroll through the apple orchard always by himself. And Karl Brandt, Hitler's physician, later tried and hung at Nuremberg, he would teach gymnastic classes in the mornings on the lawns. And some of the other scientists would give lectures. And this is, you know, fascinating details from archives, but also from the old caretaker who still lives at that castle, who learned those details from the elders who passed them on. Uh, That gives this book such a, a really gritty and intense feel. And one of the things that we immediately get woven into is the the ethics and the morals of the situation. Because on one hand, we can identify, we understand the need to get this science and these scientists. It makes sense. And you put us enough in the minds of the Americans because this was, became, at first it was just, they just wanted it. They, it was just like diamonds there, and they wanted it. But then they later discovered a justification, a program of what you call denial. So talk about how just wanting it evolved into denial. Yes. I mean, you're bringing up that idea of greed, which I think is so interesting and important to examine in the context of the military-industrial complex. And paperclips started out as 
originally a temporary program. You know, there was great dissent in the Pentagon in 1945, in the spring of 1945, about uh, the moral implications of working with any of these Nazi scientists. And you can see from reading the documents, as I did, this, this real tug of war between those who deeply opposed the program originally um, and those who felt well, we have to do this. But everyone agreed at first that it would be temporary. Very quickly, that changed. And it shows you that slippery slope of what can happen when greed sets in. Because the value of this forbidden knowledge became something that more people wanted and less people were willing to not have. And so as the Cold War heated up, that did not the idea of a denial program set in. And suddenly, this program was about denying the Soviets access to this science. The idea that it was the lesser of two evils, but it was the better choice. That if we didn't get these Nazi scientists for our side, then the Soviets would. It, it strikes me, too, that one of the things you point out that not all these guys were scientists. Not all of them were even really good scientists. Uh, the totalitarian regimes have a high tolerance for pseudoscience, don't they? You know, what comes to mind is one of the characters that I write about in the book, Arthur Rudolph, known as the father of the Saturn rocket. And I was stunned to learn that Arthur Rudolph had a high school education. He never even went to college. And, you know, not that a man cannot be learned and brilliant without a college degree. But the point was that this guy was put up on such a high pedestal in the United States as this brilliant engineer, which originally he was not. Um, the The documents suggest that part of the reason why Arthur Rudolph came here was because he was in a quid pro quo situation with Von Braun. He ran the slave labor facility at Nordhausen, and he knew a lot. And there is a real strong pull toward the idea, as you look at some of the early text of these interviews between von Braun and his and his uh, interrogators, General Dornberger, the boss of the program, and his interrogators, Arthur Rudolph. There's a real sense that they are in it together. They have a pact. They have an agreement not to say certain things, to say other things. And they are taken on collectively, ultimately 115 of them, from this underground slave labor facility where the V-2 was built and brought to Texas as a group. You know, one of the things that made them a success in the Nazi world was not just their ability as scientists, which was often dubious, but their ability to promote themselves and rewrite their own life stories, which proved to be immensely valuable once they were taken up and even in consideration for Operation Paperclip. You know, one of the more disturbing elements of the program is looking at exactly that and seeing how Army intelligence becomes complicit in 
whitewashing the past of some of these guys. And then, in the certainly in the example of the NASA, or of the rocket scientists, NASA helping them, kind of almost coaching them, here's what you say. For example, Von Braun would be interviewed, um, you know, during one of the, the rocket launches. We're now moving forward into the 60s when he's becoming you know, an American hero. Um, And he would be told to say, when asked if he was ever a member of the Nazi party, my past has been thoroughly investigated by the U.S. Army. As it had been. It's just that no one was saying what that investigation revealed. Well, what you reveal in this book, what I, as a child of the 60s, who built models of all these rockets and read all the books by Willie Lay and... Werner Von Braun was that Von Braun was a decorated Nazi. He was the highest of the highest of these SS. All these people were well aware that they were managing slave labor camps, that people were dying. These were stone cold, serious, bad Nazis. These are not good guys. These are, these are no ivory towers in this book. Von Braun's biographer, a man named Michael Neufeld, found a few years ago a document that showed that Von Braun handpicked slave laborers from the Buchenwald concentration camp. And when you think about that in the context of what was going on at Buchenwald, you it's impossible to excuse Von Braun from his Nazi past. What he saw and what he knew is undeniable. And it's it's a major part of the Holocaust that was just, you know, sliced and diced away from anything having to do with him or the rocket program. And that part of history really needs to be set straight. And I think that, you know, every journalist like myself that's writing a big story like this, an epic story, a narrative story, is also working with information um, compiled by a lot of amazing academics and historians who come before, who do that work, both German, American, and British. Well, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about getting the array of information that you got for this book and then architecting it into what reads like a page-turning World War II thriller. Uh, because that's how this reads. The narrative tension is amazing. We're just seeing these guys stash away the the mm-hmm. stuff. It it's all reads really fast. So I'd like you to talk about transforming raw data by academic heroes into something that's really super readable and intense. You know, it's such an interesting question you ask because a lot of it comes from almost reverse engineering. It's a journalist's job, at least in my case, is very much like a detective. Sometimes when I interview FBI agents, we're amazed at how similar uh, the job is, Um, except for I don't work with criminals. Um, But, uh, you know, here's an example. Dr. Theodore Benziger. When I first learned about Benziger, I read his obituary, which was published in the New York Times in 1999. Benziger was 90-something. And the obituary lauded him as this incredible physiologist, a, a doctor for the Navy. And it spoke of, you know, him having invented the ear thermometer, um, as if this is some major contribution to science. 
Well, left out of Benziger's past or left out of his obituary is the fact that he was part of Operation Paperclip. And there were some very sinister suggestions about Benziger's true history that I needed to investigate. And in going to Germany and in looking in looking at these original transcripts and sorting documents and filing Freedom of Information Act requests and looking at old archives of newspapers, I was able to put together a completely different story of Theodore Benziger, one that placed him, um, you know, at the top of the Reich medical chain of command for the Luftwaffe. And one of the most sinister things about Benziger is this. As we know, and as I write in the book, doctors for the Luftwaffe were experimenting on prisoners from concentration camps. And a film was created. And in essence, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a murder film. It's a film of medical murder. And Himmler himself wanted to have a screening of this film um, at the Reich Air Ministry. And when he decided to have that screening with a group of doctors and SS officers under very classified conditions, the man that he chose to introduce the film, the doctor, was Dr. Theodore Benziger. And then further investigation reveals that Dr. Theodore Benziger was actually arrested while working at an American military facility in Heidelberg, taken to Nuremberg, and appeared originally on the list of those, the original men who would be tried for war crimes in the doctor's trial. But mysteriously, Benziger is released from Nuremberg just a few weeks before the trial, and released into the custody of the U.S. Army Air Forces. In a matter of months, he is on his way to the United States, where he will stay for the rest of his life and work and prosper and have this obituary about him in the New York Times that paints an entirely different picture. You know, one of the things I think you do really well is take us through this chaotic series of events at the end of the war, getting all these scientists and and the different uh, countries competing. We were competing not just with the Russians. We were competing with the British as well. So I'd like you to talk about this sense of competition and trying to keep people in and get people in and out of the Nuremberg war crime trials. Yes, well, it's a very dramatic moment in Paperclip at the end of the war when you have a a team of scientific intelligence officers. We spoke about Major Tilly. He had a partner named uh, Colonel Tarr. And the two of them, British and American, were part of this scientific intelligence team to learn about Hitler's nerve agent program. And the nerve agent program remains one of the great mysteries of the war. Why Hitler did not use this arsenal he had put together, no one knows, because the Allies came across bunkers filled with tens of thousands of tons of sarin gas, ready to go. I mean, loaded into bombs and ready to be put on Luftwaffe planes and dropped on the Allies. And they weren't 
huge mystery. But even more dramatic is when these weapons are uncovered, and no one has any idea what they are, by the way, the secret intelligence team headed by Tilly and Tar are called in to test this mysterious chemical weapon. And they set up a laboratory with some rabbits, and they're all wearing gas masks, and it's incredibly dramatic. And they test this gas on these rabbits, and they expect it to take a matter of, you know, minutes, uh, as mustard gas would. And instead, it takes seconds. And everyone is astounded. And they're saying, oh, my God, what is this? It's sarin gas. We didn't know it at the time. And so there begins this incredible rush to find the men who invented sarin gas. And that takes us to what I think is perhaps the most sinister element of the program. And that involves the story of Dr. Otto Ambrose, who was Hitler's favorite chemist. And uh, his, you know... They seek out, find him, capture him, let him go. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a cat and mouse game at that point to try and secure Hitler's chemists. For, you know, each side wants their piece of the program. It's also fascinating how lax they were at various parts, how they would have these guys who we now know and they knew to be mass murderers, slave runners, People who had invented the most horrific means of killing other humans yet known to man, how they would just let them free, run around the city, and trust them that they'd come back. Yes, but there's also a little caveat with that, which I was fascinated to learn about. And through the long lens of history, you know, looking back 69 years to the end of the war, um, is a very it, we're in a very different place than these men were at the end of the war. For example, Auschwitz. I mean, the Russians liberated Auschwitz in January of 1945, and they had uh, crews of photographers with them, and they documented much of what they saw there. But I was surprised to learn that, save a few small articles in uh, Russia's military newspaper in January of 1945. Stalin was saving that big reveal for after the war to reveal the depth and the scope of what went on at a place like Auschwitz for the Nuremberg trials. And so American military intelligence was getting information rapidly in, let's say, May of 1945. But they did not know the extent of what was going on in terms of genocide, in terms of war crimes. And so there was a convenient looking of the other way with a fellow like Otto Ambrose, who ran Auschwitz III, which was the slave labor facility at Auschwitz, the factory where they made synthetic rubber, which Otto Ambrose invented for Hitler. So while one element of the army, the U.S. Army, is saying, wait a minute, this guy has to be involved in war crimes. We need to look at him. Another element of the army, the Chemical Corps, is saying... We need to look at him for his role in the invention of sarin gas. The A in sarin stands for Ambrose. And so, again, you have that tug of war between those who want to investigate the criminality of it and those who want to investigate the so-called science and technology of it. 
Operation Paperclip started out as Operation Overcast, and that was um, they had all these sheafs and folders, and then it got the name Paperclip for a very simple reason. You know, brilliant point. I mean, it's just a detail again that speaks volumes because what people begin to take sides and i'm talking about the american military officers who are in germany who are responsible for interrogating these scientists and this is going on for months and actually years as the scientists in castle cranberg and elsewhere are being you know their fates are being decided and some of the officers are very pro getting these men to the United States as part of what was then called Operation Overcast. And others are very much against it. And so a system is established whereby the scientist dossier is sort of a big manila folder. And these folders, by the way, are all in the National Archives, or many of them are. And a paperclip would be attached to the top of the folder indicating that this scientist was someone that really needed to be looked at for Americans' weapons programs. And that paperclip is how Operation Paperclip got its name. This book, too, does a fantastic job of describing how America being virtuous and fighting the good fight in World War II, in those final moments, you describe how the American government, the worm turned, and where deception of the American people became necessary in order to save the American people. This is something that's really not gone away since. And I'd like you to talk about creating this is a, one of the big themes of this book, and it's really fascinating to see the complicated way you play it out. Well, you're raising the question of uh, what does it really mean when we have a program in the name of national security? And I think this is as important of a question today as it was 69 years ago. And when you see a program like Paperclip that is run by a very small group of people, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were in charge of Operation Paperclip. And so while there were many bureaucrats um, making the program happen on an administrative level, the people who were really running the program were in this top tier at the Pentagon, in the E-ring. And the idea that they could and needed to make decisions for everyone else in the country was and is an important consideration, I think, for all of us as we think about what national security really means. And while Operation Paperclip, no doubt, was on a practical level an incredibly important part about staying ahead of the, the enemy, which was then the Soviet Union, it also involves great moral compromise. And, you know, that's always a puzzle as a journalist to look at because, you know, we as journalists write about these programs, but we're not I'm not responsible for making any of these kind of decisions. And I like to try and put myself in the shoes of those 
who made the decisions. And I think some of the more interesting characters in Operation Paperclip are exactly those American officers who were making those incredibly uh, profound decisions. Harry Armstrong is a man who comes to mind. And then there was a man at the State Department who was opposed and got in the way of Paperclip till they got him out of the way. So I'd like you to talk about crafting these two characters because they are both really fascinating guys. Armstrong knew some of the people from Paperclip before they were even really Nazis. Hubertus Strughold is known as the father of space medicine. And in many ways, he's almost a foil or a mirror of Harry Armstrong. Um, they were both physiologists. They were just on opposite teams. You know, Strughold was the top Luftwaffe physician for the Reich. Harry Armstrong was a pioneer in uh, pilot physiology at Wright Field. And they met before the war at a conference in New York City, and they were friends. And so after the war, when Harry Armstrong, and by the way, Armstrong would become the second Surgeon General of the U.S. Air Force. So there's Armstrong in Berlin in 1945 on a mission to locate Strughold and any other physicians who worked for Hitler. Armstrong called them German doctors. I think it's safe to say after my investigation, we can call them Nazi doctors. Um, but Armstrong's mission was to gather up these doctors and put them back to work immediately. And that is exactly what he did. He had them working in a facility, a classified facility in Heidelberg. And the reason being that these doctors were such hot potatoes, they were called. Their pasts were so uh, up to scrutiny, not up to scrutiny, that they couldn't be brought to the United States immediately, although 34 of them would later follow Armstrong to Texas. Initially, they worked in Heidelberg. And then Samuel Klaus, to whom you referred, is that's the State Department official who was adamant that this was a morally compromised program and should absolutely not happen. Um, he was at the State Department. He took heat from the Joint Chiefs. The reason the State Department was involved was because each of these Nazi scientists that came to America needed to have a visa. And the State Department was responsible for that. And in essence, Klaus said, over my dead body. And what happened to Klaus is a great tragedy. He was essentially accused of being a communist and forced out of any kind of involvement in paperclip and relegated to a lesser job. You know, one of the things that I think you do a great job of is divvying up the varying areas of expertise that we were looking for, because we wanted the rocket scientists, Werner von Braun. We wanted the engineers. And this was an important thing that's not often thought of. Uh, the Germans, under Georg Rieke, uh, built an enormous underground complex. It's 4.5 million square feet. It's just mm. some enormous amount. And Coming into the Cold War, I, all I could think of was the line from Dr. Strangelove where the, where the general says, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. Oh, my goodness. Just visualizing those tunnels. And, you know, you can. this is a place where tens of thousands of slave laborers were worked to death. 
you know, um, the rocket parts were brought in to the tunnels on train cars. And you can imagine these rocket parts going in, and then what comes out are the rockets and bodies. Because the conditions are absolutely abysmal. And to think that George Rickey was there, was overseeing these operations along with Arthur Rudolph, they would both become incredibly important parts of Paperclip. You could not imagine it in the spring of 1945. And yet, just a few months later, there they are, living the American dream. You know, the thing about Rickey that I found so fascinating reading the transcripts of his interrogations was that Rickey boasted about having built or having been in charge of the engineering of the Fuhrer bunker, which was Hitler's bunker under Berlin, the place where he ultimately committed suicide. And that was incredibly enticing to the U.S. Army because we knew that atomic warfare would become an issue. And we knew that we needed the kind of bunkers that the Fuhrer bunker was. And astonishingly enough, George Rickey was brought to the United States to work with the Army to begin the designs on these bunkers, which would later become these, you know, bunkers for the President of the United States. And one of them, known as Site R, or Raven's Rock, was kept secret for decades, but it reemerged in the press recently, uh, right after 9-11, when uh, Dick Cheney was rumored to have been swept off to the, the Site R, Raven Rock Bunker, the place that George Rickey helped design. It's such a, a fascinating story, and there's so so many interesting facets. Uh, one of the things that's I think interesting is that the way that the chemical and biological weapons creators, the the Nazi men, these are some of the worst of the worst, hatched two of our programs that were for us the worst of the worst, and even inspired behavior that Clinton had to uncover and expose and say, well, gosh, we ignored Nuremberg uh, laws ourselves. It gets very tricky when you're looking at the 1950s and 1960s weapons programs that involve, you know, atomic weapons, biological weapons, and chemical weapons, because these programs needed human so-called volunteers to act as test subjects. And one of the, or the number one code of conduct for the Nuremberg Code is that informed consent is required when using humans in medical experiments. And so this idea that these army soldiers, these U.S. army soldiers, volunteered for programs to be tested, essentially, you know, gassed with tabun gas and sarin gas in what we called a gassing chamber um, for the chemical corps. The idea that they were consenting is really dubious because they were consenting to a program that was classified so they knew nothing about what it was that they were being tested with. 
And the chemicals uh, were interesting not just to the Army who built the eight ball at Fort Detrick. I, let's talk a little bit about the eight ball. This is such an interesting uh, idea. Oh, my goodness. It's There's a photograph of it in the book um, that the Army generously shared with me. And it was a 141-ton giant golf ball, in essence. And it was an aerosol chamber. And we would stick monkeys um, in a chair at the center of it and and test biological agents on them. Really, you know, seriously nefarious biological weapons that we were developing in the 50s and 60s, like bubonic plague. After using Dr. Kurt Bloma, Hitler's biological weapons maker, as a consultant on some of these programs. And, you know, an amazing detail was that it actually took President Richard Nixon um, the good sense of unilaterally destroying America's biological weapons program um, when he just finally made that decision to say, this is not a weapon system that we want to be part of. I thought that was so amazing, and it really kind of changes your picture of the man. And today, he would probably be considered an ultimate bleeding heart liberal for all these various, between that and the EPA. Now, uh, out of the chemical weapons, on one hand, we were looking at these weapons of mass, mass destruction, sarin and taboon. And, and the story of taboon in this book, which I'll leave for the readers to discover, is absolutely riveting. But one of the things that you talk about is who else was very, very interested in the chemicals? The CIA. And you recount in, in a fabulously well-told story the the story of the CIA experiments because they were looking for something that could weaponize chemicals that would incapacitate people on the field. That's right. And it was, you know, it started out as this bizarre concept that you could incapacitate, not kill. That was the idea. But what you were talking about here was using these nerve agents in small doses on the battlefield to sort of knock everybody out and then go in and conquer. And the program morphed into so many different bizarre and highly classified programs, many of which are just now coming to light. But again, these were all the nerve agents that had been developed by Hitler's chemists. And we could not develop them on our own. I mean, a group of American scientists were set on the original job to try and, you know, figure out sarin gas by reverse engineering it from those captured bombs that we spoke of earlier, Um, the bombs that were found in those bunkers in the ruins of the Reich. But we couldn't do it. And so there began sort of the second tier of paperclip several years after the original program where we started taking scientists who had been tried at Nuremberg, some had been acquitted, some were actually in prison, and we began using them as consultants in Germany to to not reverse engineer the sarin gas, but to essentially give us the original formula. And and we also had one of these uh, Nazis, uh, 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 Fritz Hoffmann, the king of American poisoners, working with the CIA, and the CIA using 
the techniques of Nazi experimentation on its own men. Hoffman is a real enigma. He is one of the only, he is the only of the 21 scientists that I profile who, as far as I determined, was not a Nazi. And the reason that I say that is because when Hoffman was captured, he was carrying a document from a U.S. diplomat that said that he was not a Nazi and that he had been helping through his father-in-law pass information to the State Department against Hitler. And, And this is a very vague and oblique story, but it deserves merit because I I believe that it shows that Hoffman was not an active Nazi ideologue during the war. But Hoffman's story is very enigmatic because he comes to America to work for the Army Chemical Corps, and he becomes involved in some of the most nefarious programs of that era, including, as you mentioned, the CIA's poison master. He was such a competent and qualified chemist that he was sent around the world to locate rare poisons. And I'm talking about like poison from poison frogs and curare. And I interviewed his daughter who would talk about the trips that he would take and he would come home always under military escort and he would have little jars in his suitcase of things like sea urchins and shells. She had no idea that these all contained different poisons. But a very, very bizarre and complicated story in Fritz Hoffman. You know, one of the things you talk about in this book, and I think this is really interesting and important for the creation of this book, is the idea that many people like me have is that you go somewhere, you enter a Freedom of Information Act request, and you get the documents you want. And it's been, as you point out, it's almost 70 years since the end of World War II. It should be pretty straightforward. It's not, is it? I'm so glad you brought this up because there exists this kind of myth that you can do exactly that. You can request documents and voila, you get them. And of course, the opposite is true. Um, One example, uh, you know, for everything that a journalist is able to uncover, you can sort of imagine it as the very tippity top of an iceberg and so much more is there. And I can think of no better example than my trying to learn about Otto Ambrose. He was Hitler's favorite chemist. He was convicted at Nuremberg. Mass murder and slavery was what he was convicted of. He was sent to prison. And then in this sort of astonishing part of the program, he's actually given clemency by U.S. High Commissioner for Germany, John McCloy. McCloy had previously been the president of the World Bank, and uh, he was the American official in charge of Germany. He gives Ambrose and many other convicted war criminals clemency. Ambrose's finances are restored. And later, Ambrose is given a contract with the U.S. Department of Energy. I tried to get Freedom of Information Act documents on Ambrose, and what I found was that I was not alone. President Ronald Reagan tried to find out about why Otto Ambrose came to the United States, and even he couldn't find out. Um, Then one thinks, well, wait a minute. 
This is a convicted Nazi war criminal. He came to the United States three times. Let's look at his visas. So I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the State Department. And as it turned out, as I was told, the Otto Ambrose files are lost or missing. And so I really look forward to one day another journalist in the future picking up this story because there's so much more to tell. Remember that I look at 21 of the Operation Paperclip scientists. There were more than 1,600 of them. This is such a, a, a thought-provoking and intense book, and I'd like you to just talk a little bit about, at the end, you, you ask an important question. What lasts? What, what does this, where does this take us in mm. the future? There were two questions that I asked myself as I was reporting this very dark-hearted story. And one of them was what lasts, and the other one was, is it fair? Um, and and in, in asking that question, I refer to the iron gate over the Buchenwald concentration camp that says, Yadem das Zeine. And it's an old German proverb that says, everyone gets what he deserves. And I think of von Braun going to the Buchenwald concentration camp and handpicking those slaves, many of whom would die in the tunnels. And I think of Von Brown's trajectory in the United States as an American hero. And I really have to ask, does everyone get what he deserves? But the other question, what lasts? For the answer to that question, I interviewed, uh, well, I interviewed Gerhard Mashowski at length in this book because he was spared the gas chamber at Auschwitz because he could work. So he became a slave laborer um, at the age of 19 and lived. And when we were interviewing one day, I asked him, Gerhard, what lasts? And he pulled back the sleeve of his right arm and he showed me his tattoo from Auschwitz. And he said, this lasts, this matters. And I got my answer, and I'm grateful for that. I've been speaking with Annie Jacobson. Her new book is Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligent program that brought Nazi scientists to America. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.